Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman. In part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part two of week two, titled Baptism, recorded in February 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. So the question is, if Jesus, uh, uh, if Jesus didn't know he was the Messiah, why did he have to be baptized? Or, or you know, why did he have to be baptized at all? Well, this is, people who read the Gospels with sort of a critical lens will often contend that the stories of Jesus' baptism are apologetic. That is to say, they're trying to make a point, a negative point as well as a positive point. And the negative point that they're trying to make, according to modern scholars uh, who, who adopt this view, is that they're trying to make it clear that Jesus that Jesus' baptism meant something other than what John was baptizing people for. That is to say, if John is saying, become baptized as an act of repentance leading to the forgiveness of your sins, for what sins is Jesus repenting? In the Christian understanding, Jesus isn't repenting of any sins because he hasn't sinned. So there has to be a different explanation for the significance of his baptism than the significance that it had for everyone else. So that's one explanation of why the gospel authors are so intent on explaining what happens there as being different than the thing that happened to everyone else when they got baptized. Um, Mark seems to use this as an occasion to reveal to Jesus who he is. Because it's a private revelation. He, Jesus, heard this voice. It doesn't say John the Baptist heard it or anyone else. And when we look at Matthew and Luke's take on this, Matthew will change it to a public declaration. This, everyone, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew makes it public. Luke leaves it as a private revelation, but he too has already announced who Jesus is long before this. Right? So the baptism means something different for Matthew and Luke, uh, or there's a different shade of understanding about how this relates to Jesus' own um, commissioning as, as a son of God, as, uh, as Messiah. Does that sort of help? Okay, yeah. And I'll be happy to take questions uh, as we go. Um, okay, so that is Mark's story. What do Matthew and Luke do with it? Let's rehearse what we talked about last time. What is most important about Matthew's view of Jesus? For Matthew, the starting point is the Sermon on the Mount. The essence of who Jesus is is expressed in those three chapters, Matthew 5 to 7. And what are the centerpieces of Jesus' teaching? Fulfill the Torah and the prophets. I have come to do that. Anyone who teaches anything else shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven to be among the blessed must be excessively righteous. They must exceed the righteousness of everyone else. The opposite of righteousness is, is hypocrisy, and ultimately righteousness boils down to being perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least the part that, we'll, that we saw was significant in the way that Matthew tells his birth and infancy stories. Um, so we won't rehearse the details of how Matthew uses the birth 
and infancy of Jesus to profile the value of righteousness and of fulfillment. What we will do is see what, how Matthew develops further those themes in the birth story, or in, in the baptism story. So let's see, what does Matthew do with Mark's story here? Well, first of all, he gives John a bit more dialogue. He gives John a dialogue in which uh, we're told Pharisees and Sadducees come to John for baptism. And rather than, rather than rejoicing in this fact, John unmasks them as somehow being hypocritical. He says, you brood of vipers, you illegitimate children, in other words, who told you to flee from the wrath of God's judgment? So, again, we have a, a group of characters who signify hypocrisy, right? just as Herod the Great in the, in the birth story signifies hypocrisy. And so we, we continue on this, and again, there's the, 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 the saying of John that we talked about last time, don't presume to call yourselves descendants of Abraham, uh, you know, do things that are befitting of repentance. Again, that then explains Matthew's genealogy, which is about behavior, not biology, right? That's what makes a person a descendant of Abraham, their behavior, whether they are like Abraham. Um, so we have that theme reiterated. We also have, uh, in Matthew, a different version of what happens at Jesus' baptism. I had mentioned that John the Baptist doesn't appear to notice Jesus in Mark's gospel, because, of course, the only thing unique about Jesus' baptism is, is private to Jesus. He sees the heavens split open. He sees and hears the voice. No one else does. But in Matthew's gospel, it's public, right? So it, it changes to, this is my son, everybody. You've all heard it. After that, or actually even before that happens, before the baptism, uh, John the Baptist attempts to interrupt the process. He says, wait a minute. I should be baptized by you. So, so John sort of acknowledges, I'm not worthy to do this. And what's Jesus' response? It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So for Matthew, the meaning of the baptism is not just his commissioning, but the commissioning of one who is already fulfilling righteousness. That core value of the Sermon on the Mount that he will command his followers to do and teach others. He is walking the walk before he talks the talk. So this detail that's added in here is significant to that overall theme of fulfilling righteousness. Then we have the divine declaration of who he is. We have the test in the wilderness. Now John, or, or Matthew rather, he expands this testing by giving it some content. And we probably know or remember some of these tests. Right? The, the devil says, um, make this, these rocks turn into bread. Uh, Jesus says, no way, uh, only... You know, it's not by bread alone that people live, but by the, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, the devil tries to bring him up to the, transports him to the temple mount and says, do a messianic swan dive so that everyone will see by your miracles that you're the Messiah. Jesus says, no, don't put your, the Lord your God to the test. And then Satan says, well, here's all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you if you worship me. You should worship the Lord your God only. Now, those are pretty good responses. You know, Jesus is pretty quick with the comeback there. But what's significant about them for Matthew's theme is that every one of those responses is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, the conclusion of the Torah. 
So it's not just that Jesus resists temptation. He resists it in style. He resists it by fulfilling the Torah. Again, he walks the walk before he talks the talk a couple chapters later. So that all the details here all play into this larger theme of righteousness and hypocrisy and of fulfilling the, the Torah in this case. So that is, more or less, Matthew's take on Mark's story. He preserves every element of Mark except the secrecy, which he undoes, uh, and he adds to Mark to emphasize this theme, these themes that will be central to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, what about Luke? How does Luke handle this scene? Well, again, we have John showing up in the wilderness. We know who John is, of course. John has a... Uh, a, a we, know that, we know that he is, in fact, the, uh, the son of, of, uh, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's actually Jesus' cousin, although he seems to be unaware as an adult of who Jesus is. There's no exchange between them or a nod or a wink as Jesus is baptized in Luke's gospel. John the Baptist only recognizes Jesus in Matthew and in the fourth gospel, in John's gospel. Uh, in Mark and Luke, they pass one another in the night, as it were. Um, now, in Luke, John also has some more speaking lines. Luke adds that has the same saying about you brood of vipers, uh, you know, bear fruit uh, of repentance and all that stuff. Except that Luke has the, um, the targets of, of John's rebuke not being the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who in Matthew represent hypocrisy, but rather the crowds, the people as a whole. So if you can imagine, probably what this means is that many of the sayings of Jesus were passed down in collections of sayings that didn't have any particular historical context for these sayings. And, and we would include now the sayings of John the Baptist. So that in a sense, every gospel author is, has this raw material, this raw saying, and he has to plug it in to a particular context to give it particular meaning. I'll give you another example. In that famous statement in the sermon, which we'll review next time, be perfect as God is perfect, in Matthew, in Luke, it's be merciful as God is merciful which may or may not be a lot easier than being perfect, depending on how you understand that. But again, here, you probably have a saying of Jesus, which in its original form might have been, be like God, be like your heavenly Father, and each evangelist would say, well, what was he talking about there? For Matthew, it was clear as, as can be. He means be perfect. But for Luke, be merciful. Is mercy a theme of Luke's gospel? Yes. So again, they fill in the, the, the details, as it were, as an act of interpreting. Um, okay, so back to our story. What does Luke do with, um, with this scene in Mark? Well, in addition to John haranguing the crowd, there is a follow-up. Unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who, who apparently are simply silenced by John's rebuke, the crowds talk back. They said, well, okay, okay, lay off. What do we do then? How do we repent? And how does John respond? He says, tax collectors don't collect more than is your due. Soldiers don't extort people or, or abuse people. Uh, everyone give uh, to the needy. Which is a basic message of what group of Old Testament figures? 
Social justice. Where, where is the theme of social justice most prominent in the Old Testament? The prophets. John, in other words, is being presented as a prophet in that mold by adding this response, by expanding the dialogue between his target and their response. Will Jesus be a prophet of social justice in Luke's gospel? Yes. So again, this is not just filler. It's not just there because Luke said, ah, I have this saying and I want to put it here because Mark didn't know about it. No, it's here for a reason. It's here to amplify a central idea of Luke. Okay, so that's John the Baptist. That's how he's sort of uh, uh, expanded a bit, fleshed out a bit. And then we have something else. In, in Luke's gospel, we're actually told about John's arrest and who arrested him before we even hear about Jesus. It says, after John was, well, John is arrested. Now, after everyone had been baptized, says Luke, and after Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens open, the spirit descends, the voice declares him my son. So, one of the interesting things of Luke is not just that, um, that he tells us who arrested John, but he, but he, in a sense, draws the moment of baptism away from the giving of the Spirit. The two are separated by an indeterminate amount of time, right? In, in Mark, it's immediate. He went in, he went down, he came up, the Spirit came down. And that's how it is in Matthew 2. But in Luke, there's an undefined uh, interim, there's an undefined meanwhile. And the meanwhile is filled up by Jesus praying. When, when he prays, he receives the Spirit, he receives his commission from God. Now, why is that significant to Luke? Did Luke just want to put that in there for window dressing? No. It was a deliberate change because, remember the principle I articulated last time, a basic truth of the Gospels is that whatever Jesus looks like, the church will look like that too. Whatever your understanding of Jesus is, that will, become, that will shape your understanding of the church and vice versa. Well, we, this is very clear in Luke, who gives us a history of the church. So that Jesus' biography mimics the church's biography and vice versa. Or we would say vice versa. The church imitates Jesus' biography. How did the church receive this, the Holy Spirit? What event did... Pentecost, right. The Holy Spirit uh, was received by Jesus' followers at Pentecost. And what were they doing when they received the Spirit? They were praying, just like Jesus. So you see the connection here. It's very clear. And it's also a way of saying the beginning of Jesus' story is also like the beginning of the church's story. These both happen at the beginning of each of Luke's two volumes. Okay, so we have the ministry of John the Baptist, the arrest of John, Jesus' baptism, and then the divine declaration, you are my son today, uh, you are my son, the, the beloved, and you I am well pleased. Now, it's at that very moment that Luke intrudes something odd, something probably that sounds odd to us. He inserts a genealogy. Well, now, we, we saw and talked about Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. If it's a weird genealogy because it doesn't biologically connect with Jesus, at least we can understand it would make sense to give a genealogy at the beginning of the story before a person's born. We want to know who their parents are before they're born and before we hear the story of their life. But why wait until, John, uh, until Luke chapter 3 
for Luke to give us a genealogy. Don't we know who Jesus' parents are? We had two chapters about his parents. Why do we have to know the genealogy now? Well, let's think about how the genealogy is arranged. Remember, in Matthew, his genealogy, it made a, it made a very clear point. It says Jesus, the point of the genealogy is to show how Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and of David. The descendants of Abraham are those who fulfilled the Torah. I've come to fulfill the Torah, said Jesus at the sermon. The descendants of David, or a descendant of David, is the one destined to be the Messiah about whom the prophets speak. And so when Jesus fulfills the prophets, he is fulfilling his role as a descendant of David, according to Matthew. So that is the meaning of Matthew's genealogy. One of the meanings is to show that he fulfills the Torah and the prophets, even before he's born, just in his genealogy. Well, what is Luke's genealogy? Uh, you will look, you will try in vain to harmonize these two genealogies. The names just don't match up. They're two distinct traditions. I don't know whether they were invented or based on some sort of records that were around at the time, but he can't be descended from both of these lines. Uh, it comes to a particularly um, critical head when we come to David. According to Matthew, Jesus is descended from David through Solomon, the reigning son of David, the son of David who became king. In Luke's genealogy, he's descended through a different son of David, Nathan, one of the lesser of David's uh, brood. He had many sons. Well, he can't be descended from both sons simultaneously, so obviously someone's trying to tell us something. Now, it's, pretty, it's probably obvious why, what Matthew is trying to tell us by having, us, having him descend through Solomon, because he is the royal son of David. That is the, the focus of that prophetic prediction. A descendant, a royal descendant of David will become the Messiah. But he's that in Luke too, right? He's, he's the one, according to Gabriel, who will sit upon David's throne and rule the house of David. So why not, why not have him descended that way? Well, perhaps because what Jesus is going to be doing during his earthly life is going to be something other than ruling. In fact, right before we get the genealogy, it tells us how old Jesus was. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. Well, what kind of work is this? Is this the work of ruling Israel as Messiah? No. Jesus does not start to rule as Messiah until his ascension. That's, in fact, the whole meaning of his ascension is he begins to exercise the role of Messiah uh, and he will conclude that at the end of history. But he doesn't begin being Messiah until then. We talked about last time, Jesus is commissioned as a prophet. His work is the work of a prophet. And by not having be uh, descended from the ruling son of David, maybe that makes a point that the royal aspect's not so important for my story. But the most important thing is how the genealogy ends. Right? Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus back to Abraham, right? Luke's genealogy traces him back to the Son of God. Now guess who the Son of God was, according to Luke? Adam. Adam. Now how, how could we call Adam the Son of God? He's a human being. In fact, his name means human being. So he's a human being like all of us, except for how he came to be. How did he come to be? He didn't have a mother and a father, did he? God created him either out of nothing in Genesis 1 or out of the, the soil, the earth, in Genesis 2. But Adam 
is a human being created directly by God. To say that Jesus is my son, and then to have a genealogy that leads back to Adam, the son of God, is a way of, you know, Luke is putting this here not to give us just a list of ancestors, but to say, what do I mean? How do I understand this, this, uh, this claim of Jesus being son of God? It means he's a new Adam. He's a second Adam. He's a new human being. He's every man, every person, but he's a new every person. He is what humanity is called to become. So whereas Matthew focuses very clearly on, on a, solely on a Jewish context, if you will, of Jesus fulfilling uh, the role of Israel, right, in enacting Israel's story, drawing that from Mark, Luke gives it a different dimension. He is every person. He is every human being as God meant every human being to be. That is what Son of God means for Luke. Now that's, of course, challenging for us in a post-Nicene world where the Nicene Creed has given a distinct and very radical meaning to divine sonship. We do, not de- we do not derive our understanding of the Trinity from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or at least we don't d- derive the main aspects of that, that understanding from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We, we get that from John's Gospel, where he is the Word made flesh. Right? He is one with God. Here, he's a guy, a guy chosen by God, a guy created by God to perform a unique mission for which he will be elevated above all other human beings. So we have a focus on the humanity of Jesus here, actually. And this too, by the way, would be Luke's understanding of the virgin birth. Again, for us, um, the virgin birth is so important. The virgin birth is everything because Mary is the model of discipleship. She's the mother of the church. She's the mother of God. She is everything. And we see the beginnings of at least the discipleship part in Luke's gospel, We also see the beginnings of Mary as the mother of the church in John's gospel, but we're not quite at the developed understanding of Mary and the insight into what she means for us as human beings. Rather, the virgin birth tradition means two different things in these two different gospels. In Matthew, it's simply yet another example of how Jesus fulfills the prophets based on Matthew's Uh, take on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. Uh, So for Matthew, the virgin birth's significance is that it is yet another fulfillment of Scripture, but it's not the center, it's not center stage. It's just another way in which Jesus does the central thing of fulfilling the Torah and the prophets. In Luke's gospel, it, it's the way of emphasizing that Jesus is a new human being, a new creation, as it were. Not that he's created uh, theologically, but that he is a new human being. He is the second Adam, as Paul would put it in his letters. You have a universal understanding of, of Jesus as human here, uh, as what human beings are called to be. That, I would suggest, is Luke's understanding of the significance of the virgin birth. Okay, so we have the genealogy. We have the temptations. Like in Matthew, they're switched around, but they're the same things. Um, What happens after this in Luke's gospel? Well, John has already been arrested, so that's no longer an issue. What drives Jesus out uh, once he has successfully passed the tests is his mission as a prophet. 
What is the first thing he does when he leaves the wilderness? The first thing of significance that he does and what, Matthew, or what Luke presents as being the obvious outcome of his baptism and his testing in the wilderness is his sermon at Nazareth, which is part of our lectionary reading a few weeks ago. In this sermon, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, in which the prophet describes himself. I, the prophet, have been anointed by God. I have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, uh, healing to the blind and the lame. I am here to bring social justice, just like John the Baptist was. So Jesus, his identity at his baptism, which is explained to us more fully in the genealogy as being the new humanity, led into his first sermon, which is of him as the prophet in a sense of human dignity, bringing dignity back into the human person, what we would use modern Catholic teaching. This is how Jesus defines his mission in Luke. So there's a consistency, is my point. If we want to understand the differences among Matthew and Luke and their collective expansion of Mark's story, we have to notice that they all are of a piece. They're not random. They're not just filler. Uh, They're there in order to continue to highlight, like a good symphony highlights certain themes that are repeated. They help us prepare prepare us for Jesus' ministry and what that will mean. Right? As, the, as the one who fulfills the Torah and the prophets with righteousness in Matthew, as the prophet of social justice, uh, the one who will bring good news to the poor in Luke, and who will later then begin to exercise his function as Messiah at his ascension. All of these things are carefully choreographed in the retelling of this story so that it's crystal clear to the readers what kind of Messiah will emerge from this baptism. See you all next week. Thank you very much for coming. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.